how to obey in a law court situation. The testimony that we bear against our neighbor in the court of law is to be a true witness, not a false witness. Now, as we've seen in many times through our study of this law, uh, of God's laws, that often will get a specific example that has all kinds of applications. So don't plow with an ox and a donkey at the same time. Don't wear clothes of mixed, uh, 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 mixed materials. Well, what do those laws mean? What are they, what are they directing us to? What, what is the importance of that? Well, we've, we've uncovered that and we've, we've spent a lot of time sorting all through that. So this is another one where there's a specific law for a specific context, but it bears all kinds of applications to all of life. But the ninth commandment is often interpreted to mean you shall at all times and under all circumstances tell the truth, all of it, to anybody who asks you anything. Not only is that not what's commanded here, but it would contradict actions and events and people that God blessed, where in times of conflict, his people, God's people, deceived their enemies and were blessed for it. So the ninth commandment does not require us, for example, to tell the truth to enemies set on the destruction of God's people. As we've been approaching this uh, commandment, the ninth commandment, this is the one that I've got the most questions about over the last couple of weeks. Like, what are you going to do when you get to the ninth commandment? Because there's the Hebrew midwives and there's Rahab and there's the others. What are you going to do? Well, we have to reckon with this. And so that's, I'm, I'm, we're going to work through that. The ninth commandment does teach us that there is to be no destructive use of the tongue against our neighbor, no destructive use of the tongue against our brother, which can be done in this context, can be done by bearing false witness in a law court situation, by lying about a situation and slandering a person, or also the way you can tear someone down with your tongue is by telling the truth to a wicked person who is going to abuse the truth. Now this, this area requires some thought and some, some uh, serious consideration because the Bible shows us that there is a righteous way to deceive the serpent and there is an unholy way, there's a destructive way to, to tell the truth to the serpent. So for example, the Hebrew midwives were righteous to deceive Pharaoh. And had they obeyed Pharaoh faithfully, had they done what he said by leading to the destruction of the, of the Jewish boys there in Egypt, had they obeyed Pharaoh and truthfully carried out his commands, that would have been the definition of wickedness. They, shouldn't, they couldn't have done that. They were righteous to withhold the truth from Pharaoh when he said, what's going on here? And they said, well, these, these Jewish women are so lively. They have babies and they, 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 they have the, them before we can even get there. They, we hear that she's in labor and we get there and the baby's already there. So what are we supposed to do? And they, uh, we, we can't do anything about this. They were righteous to say that. They were keepers of the ninth commandment. They were not breakers of the ninth commandment. And if our, if our brains trip over that, it's likely because we have this idea that there's something called truth that's outside of God. There's some abstraction called truth that even God himself is subject to. Is there an absolute universal truth that God submits himself to, or is God alone absolute? Of course, I think we have to answer the question, God alone is absolute. God himself is the definition of what is true and what is right. The Lord Jesus Christ is before all things, and in him all things consist. So, all things includes truth. Jesus is before all things. He came before truth, and in him truth consists. He is the definition of truth. He is the way, the truth, the life. 
So how we handle the truth is always in relation to God and his purposes and his will and in terms of his law. And it's never, we never handle the truth in a vacuum. So to help us think through this and help us sort through this question, we can go back to St. Augustine who organized uh, and, and, and um, categorized four kinds of deception. And then, and then Luther came along later and built on Augustine's work. I'm not dropping names because I want you to know that I read these things. I'm, I'm giving you these names so that you know I'm not up here making things up, right? I, I'm giving you these names because I want you to know, okay, well, if, if he's not correct, well, then there are other guys also that are incorrect, and I need to go work that out as well. But, but um, careful thought has been given to this through the centuries by um, some, some of the greatest minds in church history. And, and this is how Augustine um, categorized deception. First, there is play, playful, playful deception. Jokes, jest, play acting. When I wrap a present or I hide a, I hide a Christmas present, that is, that is concealing. Uh, and if you ask me what's in there and I say a lump of coal, it's not a lump of coal, but I'm being playful. Uh, when, when you ask a little boy, who are you little boy? And he's wearing a cape and he says, I'm Superman. That's not a destructive deception. That is playful. Those are not wicked or destructive lies. Actors and, and actresses engage in playful deception when they're, when they're pretending to be someone else. That guy is not really Romeo. And we all know that he's not really Romeo. I mean, he's not even good looking enough to be Romeo. He's just, so we know that's not Romeo. That girl is not uh, Wonder Woman or, or whoever. We allow that there are creative playful, uh, imaginative spaces where someone is gonna tell us things that aren't true for the purpose of drama. We can write and read and enjoy fiction in this category. Jesus told parables, the prophets told parables. Jesus was a creative storyteller and we know that when he's telling a story, he isn't undermining his credibility as the very source of truth. He knows we can tell the difference. So first there's playful deception. The second kind of deception is obliging deception, where righteousness obligates you to avoid telling the whole truth in order to spare someone's life, in order to preserve your neighbor, preserve your brother. If you lived in Amsterdam in the 1940s and Nazis come and knock on your door and they say, have you seen any Jews around here lately? And you just happen to have a family of Jews living in your basement. You can look at that Nazi soldier in the eye and say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I haven't seen any Jews forever. Are there Jews in Amsterdam? I don't know what you're talking about. And you say that with a straight face and you can go to bed and lay your head down at night in peace with a clear conscience. That is obliging deception. That is, that is a, uh, where, where you are defending the life of someone, uh, avoiding to tell the truth to preserve their life. Uh, Rahab did the very same thing with the Hebrew spies in Jericho, right? And Rahab was blessed for it, and she was praised for it. The ninth commandment does not require us to tell the whole truth to anyone who ever asks us anything. There are people who are not entitled to the truth because they pervert truth. They use the truth for destructive purposes. And if you tell the truth in those situations, you are complicit in their evil. The Hebrew midwives would have been complicit in the murder of those children. Rahab would have been complicit in the destruction of God's servants, the spies. Now, right now in our present context, there are a whole host of questions that you and your children might get asked by various people who are looking to do you harm or looking to do your neighbor or your brother or sister harm. And answering truthfully, answering with 
and, and thinking that you've got to say everything, answering in that way will only bring you trouble and harassment and difficulty. I've told my children that if somebody's asking you a question uh, that doesn't have the right to the information, whoever or whatever situation that might be, if somebody asks you a question that you know they, they don't deserve this information, your answer is this, I don't answer questions. I don't answer questions. That's all you gotta say, I don't answer questions. They can, they can keep asking questions, you keep answering. I don't answer questions, I don't answer questions. So uh, the, this, um, um, we, we have these various stories in the Bible of where people were blessed for, uh, for not telling the entire truth to people who would use that truth in a destructive way. Thirdly, there's the military deception where you keep information from the enemy or you give misleading information to the enemy. Like Gideon, who deceived the Midianites into thinking that there were more than 300 men in his army. Like Jael, who invited Sisera into her tent. He, she, she gave him some milk and she told him to lay down and take a nap, acting as if she were being hospitable before she stapled his head to the floor with a tent peg. Like Ehud, who hid a sword on his left side when he went in to see Eglon to assassinate him. In just warfare, there is no expectation that you are going to be honest with your enemy. Gideon wasn't obligated to call down to the Midianites and say, hey, fellas, just so you know, we don't actually have any weapons up here, and there's only about 300 of us, and we got some pitchers, and we got some torches, and we got some band instruments, but other than that, we're pretty, we're pretty helpless up here. FYI, uh, you don't have to do that. You don't have to email the enemy with a list of your resources and let him know where you plan to move tomorrow. In these life and death situations, the ninth commandment does not require you to spill the truth to people who are going to use that truth to do evil. If you do that, there's another category for you. You are a spy, you are a traitor, you're breaking the sixth commandment, but that's not keeping the ninth commandment. I think we all agree. I think we all agree that someone who shares secrets and somebody who would bring down the, 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 the defenses of, of our people, that would, be, that would be really horrible. That would be really bad. And, we, and that's, how we, that's how we understand it. And the fourth kind, the kind that is directly forbidden by the ninth commandment, <clears throat> is the destructive lie. This is any and all use of the tongue in deliberately trying to harm your neighbor to harm your brother, to ruin their reputation, to slander them, to say false things, to make them look bad, to falsely accuse them, or to lie to cover up for your own sins, especially in a court situation in the ninth commandment, where the quest for truth is perverted by your false witness. So today, as quickly as we can, I want to consider both the destructive use of the tongue in saying true things and the destructive use of the tongue in saying false things. Now, it might be a whole lot easier and it might be less complicated if we just spent the next few minutes talking about bad lies. And it may be simpler for me to just say, you know what, you should never, ever, 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 ever deceive anyone ever for any reason, end of story. But if I said that, I would be dishonest with the scriptures and I wouldn't be giving you the whole counsel of God. We wanna grow up and we wanna be mature. We want the meat of the word. We don't want platitudes or bumper stickers or sound bites. We are being called to gain kingly wisdom in a, uh, a world co complicated by sin and error and wicked men. So we have to give this some careful thought. Well, what does the Bible say first? So, so two categories, truths used in a destructive way, lies used in a destructive way. Uh, what, is the, what does the Bible say about destructive truths? 
Are we obligated to say everything openly that's true all the time without any regard of who we're saying it to or whoever asks us a question? Do you know who says everything that's on their mind um, without any regard for how anybody takes that? You know, you're fat, your house smells funny, you're ugly. What's that stain from? You know, what, uh, what, what's going on? That's a toddler, right? That's a preschooler. They have no filter. Is that how we're to live? Is that what the ninth commandment requires us to do? No, Proverbs 11 says, a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Proverbs 22.3, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. The Bible recognizes that there is such a thing as a secret truth. And there is wise and faithful concealment of such a truth. And there's a folly of revealing secrets that leads to destruction. So the scriptures give us a number of examples. And I've already alluded to a couple. Examples of people who were blessed by deceiving a wicked oppressor or, or, or blessed by deceiving the seed of the serpent in order to protect God's people, to protect the seed of the woman or to protect her, her, her children. This comes up so often in scripture that I don't know how you can teach the Bible without acknowledging or addressing the fact that God blesses and encourages the deception of the serpent and his minions. First of all, God himself deceives the wicked and he leads them to destruction. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 says, God sends reprobates a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now often and over and over in the Bible, we read God does not lie. Uh, let every uh, man, uh, let God be true and every man be a liar, right? Over and over. God cannot lie. God does not lie. But in his judgment, he turns men over to allow them to believe lies. He turns them over to allow them to, to believe destructive delusions. And he does that often through his people. Abraham and Isaac both deceive wicked kings in saying that their wives are their sisters so that their wives wouldn't be taken from them and they would be killed. Tamar deceives Judah to get the protection and the provision that God's word says she deserves. Rachel sits on Laban's idols. That's one of the funniest and, and one of my favorite scenes in the Bible where these idols are so strong that a woman can sit on them. And, and Laban is looking around for his precious little gods and Rachel's sitting on them. The Hebrew midwives deceive Pharaoh. Rahab deceives the men of Jericho and she saves the spies. Jael deceives Sisera. David practices deception and subterfuge the entire time that he is escaping from Saul. One time, his wife, Michael, dresses up an idol and puts goat hair on his head and lays it in the bed, and, and she tells Saul's men that he's laying there sick. You know, uh, that was way before Ferris Bueller, even. But she did. She put him in the bed and made it look like he was there. Another time, David pretends to be insane so that the Philistines will pity him and not kill him. And those are just a handful of the big ones. These are all in the context of warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so often in the Bible, the deception is carried out by women toward the violent or the oppressor. This is a big sharp stick in the eye to Satan. Satan deceived Eve. He used deception against Eve and now she gets him back. She deceives him back. Holy deception is a weapon that God has given the woman in her fight against the serpent. So women and the protection of women or the protection of the seed of the woman is always in view in all of these holy deceptions when lives are at stake. 
Here's another consideration. In every one of these cases, the holy deception often puts the deceiver in greater danger. So you know that they're not lying in order to protect their own skin. They're doing this to deliver God's people or to crush the head of the serpent. Think back to the Hebrew midwives one more time. They deceived Pharaoh because they feared God more than Pharaoh. But they lied courageously, putting their own lives in danger in order to protect the lives of God's covenant children. This wasn't a selfish motive. Something bigger than their own personal holiness or their own bodily protection is at stake here. Just consider Rahab again for a moment. Her choice was to either tell the truth and surrender godly men to certain death, or she could deceive the men of Jericho, putting her own life in jeopardy, but to save the lives of the spies. This isn't one of those events where you could say, well, you know, God kind of overlooked her sin. Rahab should have really told the truth. She really should have said, you know, the, the, the spies are over here. Go get them. And then, and then God would have made a good outcome anyway. We can't say, had she been absolutely spotless and told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, then karma would have been on her side and things would have been okay. That's, that's not the narrative. That's not the story. In the New Testament, both the book of James and the book of Hebrews calls her out, singles Rahab out. Rahab is praised for the way that she protected God's men. God is not winking at or overlooking some horrible thing and making things right in spite of what she did. It was her faithfulness in deceiving the wicked that delivered the spies and played a big part in Israel's victory at Jericho. God's will in this situation was that the lives of the faithful be saved, not that the individual Rahab would be able, at the end of the day, say, you know what, I'm, I'm perfectly honest and I never, I never tell a lie and I never deceived anybody. You see, where, where this trips us up and, and where this is so complicated for us is because we're grounded in pietism. We have accepted and drunk full at the well of this idea that all that the Christian faith is about is the personal piety of the individual soul. The pietist wants to be able to say that personal individual holiness and personal preservation is paramount. Nothing is more important, we think, than your preservation of your own moral purity. And to that end, everything has a simple, uncomplicated, absolute moral answer. And, and the pietist would say that no matter what, Rahab in the Hebrew midwives and the others were bound to the truth, irrespective of what wicked men might do with that truth. Understand, this is not biblical faith. The Bible doesn't teach this. The Bible doesn't praise this. The Bible doesn't promote this. The Bible doesn't teach that it's holy to tell the truth to enemies that leads to the killing of friends, the killing of neighbors and loved ones, because, because the only important issue here, all that's, all that's important is the personal abstract purity of the individual soul. Self-perfection of the individual is not the mission of the Christian faith. Preservation of the covenant protection of your neighbor, protection of your brother, producing and guarding the seed of the woman, the holy offspring. These are all way more important than personal self-preservation or self-perfection. Therefore, keeping the ninth commandment means I will not use my words to assist in advancing evil against my neighbor. I want to clarify so that in whatever scenario in your life you're working to apply this to, that we maintain a biblical perspective 
we're talking in all of these cases about warfare against the serpent. We're not talking about self-preservation. If I haven't made that clear already, we're not talking about self-preservation. We're talking about preservation of the covenant, my neighbor, women, and children. So you can't use the example of the Hebrew midwives to justify deception of your husband or deception of your wife or deception of your parents. If your parents or your your wife is in the army of Satan, if they're, if they're the serpent, uh, then why haven't you told us about this before now? You know, why, you, why haven't you brought this to us and told us about this? The context is warfare against a credible threat who is coming against the covenant. That is the context for this. Um, and if that's so theoretical, maybe we should ask, well, why spend time on this? Why are you taking up so much time with this? This all just seems very academic and very theoretical. Well, these kinds of conversations used to be purely theoretical, and we couldn't ever imagine living a time in our lives where the church might actually be persecuted or oppressed. But we've come a long way in the last few months. And there are so many situations and scenarios where you might face the concealing of a matter for the protection of your family or for the protection of the church, over the protection of your brother's reputation, and know that that is of far greater importance than your personal comfort or your ability to lay down your head at night and say, well, at least I didn't deceive anybody. And it reminds us so much of the, that the context of the Bible, so much of the context of the Bible is warfare. All of these situations I brought out, this is all warfare. This is the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is the progressive crushing of the head of the seed of the serpent by deceiving him the way he deceived Eve. Uh, the Bible's not this collection of harmless little truths that look good on a verse of the day calendar. That's not, that's not what the Bible is. But stories that put grit in you and encourage you that, that we are still at war between uh, us and the world, the flesh, and the devil. So many more things to say, and I'm sure you've got questions, and I will answer any of them, but, before, but, but we need to move on to the destructive use of the tongue in saying false things. There's a way to use true things destructively. There's a way to use false things destructively. There's outright lying to destroy another person or to cover up for your own sin or to plot wickedness. And all, thi all these things are things that God hates. So we're moving outside of the context of warfare against the serpent and we're moving into daily normal interactions. And I want to read from Proverbs 6, verse 12, uh, because, because Solomon just kind of encapsulates it right here. Um, verse 12, chapter 6, a worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth, he winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers, perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually, he sows discord. Therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. So in our day, in normal interactions, even in friendly interactions, words are treated as if they're nothing. We don't live as though our words really mean anything. We can play loosely with the facts or descriptions, and we can weave stories together that make us look better or make other people look worse. We selectively share certain details or leave out other details to shape the narrative in such a way that we tell a story that we want to tell without giving the full picture. 
In that passage from Proverbs I just read, we see the description of the undisciplined and the irresponsible tongue. Solomon paints a picture of someone who is always sowing strife, stirring up discord, using his tongue in a way that, that creates conflict between people. Someone who is overwhelmingly critical and perverse and full of false half-truths and idle speech. These things, God says, are an abomination, and these behaviors must not be found among God's people. The ninth commandment forbids any and all communication about another man that misrepresents him or mischaracterizes him in a way that ruins his reputation, often referred to as slander or libel. Slander is false witness about a man that comes by the way of the mouth. It's gossip which injures another man's character or property or office or profession. Libel is spreading false witness by means of writing, and God, God hates both, which means that if we're talking about someone or sharing information about someone, we must absolutely be sure that we are representing them fairly. And if we aren't representing them fairly, then we must keep our mouths closed. Understanding someone's position and their character requires careful thought and patience, though we typically cut corners and we rather go off sound bites and impressions of our own reactions to our own perceptions. And that's what we spread around. That's what we repeat. And once it's out there, you can't get it back. Lies spread much faster than the truth. How often have you heard yourself quoted by someone else that was so far off, you think, I would never say anything like that. I, I don't know, I, I, that, that doesn't even sound like me. And it's nothing like reality. It's all based on someone else's perception. They never took the time to come to you and seek clarification. If you are party to spreading lies about someone, when you haven't taken the time to understand them or find out the truth, the Bible calls you a, a talebearer or a gossip. It also says you're a liar and you're a false witness that, and God hates that behavior. He says, these things I hate. These are things are an abomination to me. One preservative against bearing false witness is don't share sensitive information with someone who is neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. And this is something that over and over, you've heard me say this before, but I want to say it again. Gossip, ordinarily, is sharing information with someone who's not part of the problem and they're not part of the solution. If I'm talking about someone to someone else and this information has no relevance on them, I'm very likely just saying it to tear them down, to, to take them apart, to protect our brother's reputation to uphold his good name means we don't talk about him if he's not in the room, unless the person we're talking to is part of the problem or part of the solution. If you keep that in your back pocket, if you keep that with you, that will keep you from the temptation of breaking the ninth commandment here. And even when in normal conversation someone else's name comes up, we must always seek to represent him fairly and correctly to the best of our ability. The Bible has so much to say about idle speech. Jesus says, for every idle word that men speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. Idle speech is careless or useless speech. It's usually associated with accusations or slander. Remember the devil. What's he called? He's called the accuser of the brethren. And when you run down your brothers with your tongue, when you're complaining and harping and griping, you're doing the devil's work. Slander is demonic. I mean, very literally, you are being the devil's advocate when you slander and when you accuse the brethren. In all things, preserve the truth by not harming people with your tongue. Do not harm people with lies. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
Psalm 15 talks about the man who swears to his own hurt. He's a righteous man who swears to his own hurt. The righteous make promises and keep them, even if making that promise and keeping that promise puts me in a disadvantage or an inconvenience. If I say I'm going to help you move your stuff on Saturday morning, I'm going to come over there and help you get some stuff out of your shed, and you've got me down, and I'm going to be there, and you're counting on me. But then Friday night, I get a call that says, hey, let's go just do something fun Saturday morning from, that doesn't involve moving stuff and putting it in a truck. I say, I can't do it. I'm already committed. I've already told somebody I would be there. I already promised. If I enter a contract with you and, and a better deal comes along, guess what? I can't change my mind. I stick with my contract. I keep my word because I made a promise and I'm not going backward. I'm not going to tear you down. I'm not going to destroy you by breaking a contract with you. And when we fail and when we sin, we must not compound the sin with lies. Lies don't cover sins. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to other people. Don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Be honest and confess your sins. Say, I failed. I sinned. I really messed up and I need forgiveness. Lies don't do a good job of covering sins. They do just about as good as fig leaves did for Adam and Eve. They don't work. Only the blood of Jesus covers sins, not lies. Reveal your sins to your heavenly father and he will conceal them with the blood of Jesus and he will bury them. In all things, here's what the ninth commandment teaches. Protect the life and the reputation of your neighbor. Protect the life and the reputation of your brother and your sister with your tongue. Don't give the truth to people who are going to use it in a destructive way. Don't tell lies that people are going to use in a destructive way against your neighbor. We keep our word. We uphold the truth. We have such a high regard for the truth because Jesus is the truth. He's the one who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Not that he submits to some greater thing called the truth, but that he is the definition of the true. He is the ultimate, the eternal, the absolute, the underived. He is the complete one. He is the God of truth and all truth flows from him and truth only has context and truth only has meaning as it finds its context in him and his word. So in the ninth commandment, we are forbidden from being false witnesses. Jesus is called the true witness in the book of Revelation. He had all the true and accurate information about all the nations and all the men and all the families of the earth. And Jesus doesn't speak falsehood or slander in judgment. And thus as the true witness, he stands as the Lord and judge over history. He testifies against every man that puts his trust in something other than the sovereign and true God. Jesus stands as a witness before the Father on your behalf. He is the true witness. Jesus is the true witness who says, he belongs to me and he belongs to me and she belongs to me and that little one belongs to me. They all belong to me. They're mine these are my people. Jesus stands as our true neighbor, our true brother in God's law court who doesn't accuse us, who doesn't slander us like the devil, but he says, honestly, these are my brothers and sisters. So as we draw closer to Jesus, we draw closer to the truth and the right use of the truth. Know Jesus, draw near to him, and you draw near to the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your law. Help us to continue to apply it correctly. Help us to understand it. Grow us in it, we pray. And we ask you to grant us this for us and our children every day. In Jesus' name, amen.